Luke 18 is where we are. Luke 18, verse 9. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels. Luke 18, beginning in verse 9. Brief passage. He also told this parable to some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other a tax collector. The Pharisee, standing by himself, prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. But the tax collector, standing far off, would not even lift up his eyes to heaven, but beat his breast saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified rather than the other. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. The Word of God. Church, there is no sin in other people that bothers us so much as the sin of pride. And there is no sin in our own lives that we can be more oblivious of than the sin of pride. And the ugliest form of pride is spiritual pride or religious pride or self-righteousness. And that's what this little parable is all about. One of my favorite passages in the Gospels, however, um, this is a parable that speaks to every single one of us. Certainly it speaks to me. Uh, too closely. He is addressing in verse 9, we see, to those people who trusted in themselves that they were righteous, that they were good enough to get into heaven. They were self-reliant, self-dependent, uh, self-made, you know, I can, uh, you know, thank you God that I'm so good that I can, I'm better than those other folks and I can fast twice a week and I can give all a tenth of all that I've got. Lord, uh, you know, he, he is so impressed with how religious or how spiritual he is. It's the sin of pride or self-righteousness. He trusted in themselves that they were righteous, and therefore they were looking down on other people, condescending, contemptuous of other people. The greatest sin, perhaps, is the sin to not be aware, to not admit that you have sinned. Because if you don't admit that you've got sin, you'll never find a Savior who will save you from your sin. So maybe the root sin is not being aware of your own sin. In the middle of last century, a literature professor, not a pastor, not a scholar, but a literature professor at Oxford University wrote a book, Mere Christianity, that probably had the most impact of any book outside the Bible in the spiritual in the Christian world during the last hundred years, and that is the book called Mere Christianity, influenced tons of people, including me. 
By the way, we not only have it in our library, which is in Portable 2, that way, but through those doors, we've got a little bookstore, and I've carefully chosen 25 titles that I think are just uh, uh, superb books. And one of those books is Mere Christianity. Now, in that book, little book, small little book, uh, the best section I've ever read on pride is, in that, uh, is contained in this book. C.S. Lewis, the author, said this, As long as you are proud, you cannot know God. A proud man is always looking down on things and people, and of course, as long as you are looking down, you cannot see something that is above you. The proud man or woman cannot know God, and that includes the spiritually proud. Now, addressing those people who were impressed with how good they were, how holy they were, how righteous they were, who were condescending towards others, Addressing those people, he tells a very simple story with two characters praying at the temple. Let's unpack it a bit. In verse 10, two men went up into the temple to pray, one a Pharisee and the other tax collector. Let's just unpack a couple of things here. First of all, they went up into the temple. You know, throughout the New Testament, throughout the Gospels, people are described as going up to Jerusalem because Jerusalem sits at about 2,500 feet, which is higher than the surrounding area. But not only... Do they go up to Jerusalem? But when they're in Jerusalem, if they go to the temple, they go up into the temple. This is what's going on. Uh, in the old city of Jerusalem that you'd go to today, still today, is the ancient city of Jerusalem where David was and where Jesus was. And that old city, about a mile square, though it's not a square, but about a you know, mile each of the directions, there is a wall around that city, say uh, half that size. Old wall from the 1500s, not the ancient city. But if you go into the heart of that city, there is a Jewish quarter, a Muslim quarter, a Christian quarter, and then a, a group of Christians called the Armenians, the Ar Armenian quarter. And if you go to the most sacred spot to the Jews in the ancient city, then you will go to the Western Wall, sometimes called the Wailing Wall, but really it's the Western Wall. And what it is, is it's the restraining wall on the west side of the Temple Mount. So uh, there's the old city, and then in the middle of it, the western wall, which is sort of restraining the dirt because uh, there's a wall about this high, say 60 feet high, uh, around the whole Temple Mount area, and it's up high. And so to get there, you go upstairs. Today, there are wooden stairs. Back in that day, there were stone stairs. And so whenever the New Testament we read, somebody goes up into the temple, they literally go up. So these two men go up into the temple, and they go to pray. Pharisee and tax collector. Are, are we crystal clear about the Pharisees? A religious party. That's a little hard for us because we don't have religious parties today. You know, we have political parties because we have a democracy, you know, a vote of the people. They had a theocracy that, you know, really God was in charge. And they did not have political parties. They had religious parties because it was all tied together, government and religion. Now, the leading political religious party was the Pharisees. Pharisees, Sadducees, Herodians, Zealots. Uh, the leading party were the Pharisees. There were about 6,000 of them. They were scholars who studied and defended the law and were kind of the policemen to make sure everybody's keeping the law. They not only kept the law, but they had a bunch of, of uh, traditions to explain the law, and they were zealous also about their traditions. So you kept not just the Old Testament law, 
in Genesis through De- De- Deuteronomy, but you kept their traditions also. Now, Jesus repeatedly clashed with the Pharisees. The Pharisees weren't used to anybody clashing with them. They were the spiritual heroes. They were the ones who taught in the synagogues. People looked up to them. They were the examples. But so often they, they talked one thing and lived another. They were filled with self-righteousness, as you see here. They really didn't care about people in hurt, hurt, and Jesus challenged them repeatedly. And so he clashed with the Pharisees. So the Pharisees, let's see what happens. He prays. How does he pray? We see it in verse 11. He says, he's standing by himself. He prayed thus, God, I thank you that I am not like other men. Extortioners, not a common word for us, any kind of financial corruption, stealing. Unjust, evil, don't keep the law. Adulterers, you know what that is. Or even like this tax collector over here. He says, I fast twice a week. I give tithes of all that I get. So he's just dripping with pride. You know, thank you, God, that I'm you know, not like those other folks who aren't doing it right, who aren't religious, who aren't devout. Lord, thank you. You know, I, I, I'm, I'm, I'm giving a tenth. I'm fasting. And, you know, he was just so pleased with himself and so impressed with how spiritual he was. And as we see in verse 9, he was essentially trusting in himself to get into heaven. Not a savior, but trusting in himself because he was so good. And so he's filled with spiritual pride. He has condescension towards all the other non-Pharisees people, and especially that tax collector over there. If I could go to Lewis again in that section of mere Christianity. He said, if anyone thinks that Christians regard unchastity, sexual sin, as the supreme vice, he is quite wrong. The sins of the flesh are bad, but they are the least bad of all sins. All the worst pleasures are purely spiritual. That is why a cold, self-righteous prig who goes regularly to church may be far nearer to hell than a prostitute. But, of course, it's better to be neither. Church, this simple little passage, the Pharisee and the tax collector, this Pharisee is impressed with how spiritual he is. And he's looking down at others who aren't as spiritual. Does that hit you where you live? It hits me where I live. And I would just say that probably if you are here and you're not thinking this is hitting you where you live, maybe you have the greatest problem of all with spiritual pride. If maybe you are already thinking about some other people that ought to be here to hear this sermon on spiritual pride or self-righteousness, Maybe that's a red flag for you. (laughs) That's looking down on other people. Um, Church, we're not sort of a casual social club here at Woods Edge. You've been around here, you know that. We don't call anybody to, you know, kind of comfortable, casual Christianity. We call you to go all out for Jesus Christ because he deserves it. He is the Lord of glory who died on the cross for our sins. We call you to seek the Lord with all your heart to worship Him, serve Him, give to Him. It's the privilege of our life. Meet with Him daily in prayer and the Word and serve Him and reach out to people who are on the outside who have needs and challenges and serve inside, outside the body of Christ in any way you can. We encourage us to, you know, take five friends and pray for them daily that they'd come to know Christ. We call folks to all out 
discipleship to Jesus Christ. However, there is a danger in that. It's a subtle danger. It kind of comes from the blind side. And it's the whispering voice of the enemy that if you do any of those things, say you give 10% off the top, well, it is very easy to begin thinking, you know, well, I'm doing pretty good here. I bet a lot of those other people aren't doing 10%. Uh, you know, I bet they're, they're not nearly as spiritual as I am. We don't verbalize those things, but those attitudes can creep into our minds. If you're spending a lot of time in the Bible and praying, and you know, it's easy to kind of hear the voice that, you know, man, I really got a heart for the Bible. I don't really study that Bible. Don't know what's wrong with those other people over there. When you are going all out for Jesus Christ, it is difficult not to begin thinking, man, I'm doing this right. And those other people need to get with it. And Jesus says that is the worst of all sins. This sense of spiritual pride, self-righteousness, and condescension. And is any one of us free of that? Probably not. Probably not. I am not. I think there are two anecdotes to spiritual pride. The, the solution to this is not to, uh, you know, not obey the Lord and seek the Lord. So that's not the solution. Here's the solution to remind yourself every day that if you have any inkling, any inclination to serve the, serve the Lord, give to the Lord, uh, seek the Lord, any inclination to obey the Lord, it is a gift from God. If you have any desire to read the Bible, it is because God put that desire in you. If you have any desire to give to help needy people around the world, around Houston, God put that desire in you. It is a gift from God and a gift alone. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 4, 7, talking about the good, some of the good things in his life, he says, what do I have that I have not received? Friends, that is the question for all of us. What do I have that's good in my life? Any ability, any skill, any resource, any relationship, what do I have good in my life that I have not received as a gift from a, a gracious God? Nothing. Nothing. He is the author of all good. We've got to get that so deep in our souls. The anecdote. The antidote for spiritual pride. But not just that. It's not, um, you know, the, 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 the idea of finding somebody else or some other people or some other churches to look down upon. Uh, we got to remind ourselves other people are not the standard when it comes to the spiritual life. Jesus Christ is the standard. And Jesus Christ sets a pretty high bar. And you're not there yet. And neither am I. Let's come down a little bit off of our high horses. Um, what I want to say to us this morning is I want to remind you. You know, I love you guys. I love you guys so much. I love your hearts for the Lord. I love the way you seek. This is a very generous church. Um, people generous. Serving more. We share any need in the community or places. Man, people just give to that. They're out and the neighborhood's doing all kinds of things. I love the hearts of this church. But let's be aware. Uh, no patting ourselves on the back. But rather, oh God, you are gracious to me. But I'm so far short of where I could be. And where I should be. Spiritual pride. Mother root of sin. Now, that's the uh, Pharisee. What about the tax collector? Now, now, who are the tax collectors? We don't have, really, tax collectors. 
They're not quite like IRS agents, agents today. In fact, they're not at all like IRS agents. It'd be more like an inner city drug pusher who was pushing drugs through a high school and young high schoolers were dying. Something a little bit like that. Total outcast. A tax collector in that day. Well, who are they collecting taxes for? Well, Rome rules the country. They gave the Israelites a little bit of say. But when it comes to the real things, the money, uh, they get the taxes. Because they rule things at this point. The Jews hated that because they were the people of God. You know, if anybody ought to be in charge of other countries, it ought to be the Jews over other countries, not other countries enslaving us. So they hated that. These tax collectors... uh, had the freedom, they, they contracted with the government to, to have a certain area to collect taxes. And a lot of them were corrupt and, and collected more taxes than they had to collect, and they had the Roman authorities behind them. And moreover, they were collecting taxes for the enemy. Now, if Russia invades us, you know, next year, and they take over the United States, and some of us are working for the Russian government, I mean, that's treason, that's traitors. And those are bad people. And it's like that for the tax collectors. I mean, they were the traitors. They were so despised that they were not allowed to go to synagogue. I'm I'm surprised they could go up into the temple courts. They couldn't go to synagogue. They couldn't serve as a witness in a court of law. They were total uh, social outcasts. Think drug pusher. So the hero of Jesus' story doesn't grab us if we think of it as tax collector. But we think, man, this guy is a pimp. Okay, that gets our attention. He makes that guy the hero? Okay, you got the feel of it. Okay, so here's the Pharisee. Thank God I'm not like those other, especially that tax collector. And then he says, and then there was the tax collector. Verse 12, 13, but the tax collector standing far off, probably not at the front of the temple, way back in the back, standing far off, would not even look up to heaven, didn't feel worthy to look up to heaven. Be his breast. Now, we don't beat our breast, but, but it was an expression of, of remorse, of, re, of brokenness. Maybe it'd be like us in a moment of regret and remorse, just you know, burying our head in our hands. He's just broken. He's broken. And then, then, then his prayer, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's all he can say. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I mean, that is the opposite of self-righteousness. It is the opposite of condescension towards others. It is the opposite of spiritual pride. It is brokenness. It is humility before God. Overwhelmed with his sinfulness. Oh, God, would you have mercy upon me? The passage starts with speaking of those who trusted themselves they were good enough. He is not trusting himself he's good enough. He is doing the opposite. Oh, God, if you don't have mercy, I'm sunk. He is looking to God to make him right. And to get into heaven. So it's, it's completely the opposite. He is broken in his repentance. God be merciful to me, a sinner. The very first step in becoming a Christian and entering the kingdom of God is the awareness of your sin problem. You will never find a Savior unless you are willing to humble yourself in the most profound way and admit you cannot save yourself. You need a Savior. You've got a sin problem. That is overwhelming, and you need the mercy of God. That is the first step. 
This is, out of all the verses, out of all the prayers in the Bible, this is the sinner's prayer. I mean, this is the prayer to pray. Don't have to say those exact words, but that's got to be our heart. God, have mercy on me. Would you save me? Lord, I need a Savior. This is the sinner's prayer. God, have mercy upon me, a sinner. The word mercy, I've just got to say a little bit about. Because there is an everyday Greek word at the time for mercy, elios. He doesn't use that. He uses a term that's only used four or five times. And it becomes a technical term uh, in special cases. And it's translated elsewhere as propitiation. Propitiation. For example, let's look at 1 John 2.2. At the end of the New Testament, 1 John 2, the same root word is used. He, Jesus is the propitiation for our sins and not only for our, and not for ours only but also for the sins of the whole world he's the propitiation and this is what it means it means that Jesus satisfied paid for the holy wrath of God against sin the the punishment that a holy God uh, pours out against sin and it's, it's that Jesus satisfied and paid for and covered and took care of the wrath of God against sin. A little bit later in 1 John 4, one of the great verses in Scripture that everybody ought to memorize, 1 John 4, 10, and this is love. Not that we love God, but that He loved us and gave His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. This shows you the love of God, that a holy God would send His own Son to cover us and take care of our sins. He, he took the wrath of God that ought to be us, that ought to be going to us. So it's like the, the wrath of God, the judgment of God, the holy justice of God, which needs to go against sin. Jesus steps in our way, and he absorbs it all. He is the propitiation, the satisfaction of our sin. Now, it's interesting. Never else in the Gospels does Jesus use this word. But in Luke 18, 13... For the tax collector, he doesn't say the normal word, be merciful, but he says, be propitious for me, a sinner. Have mercy, O God, and cover my sin and take care of the wrath that's due against me, that I deserve, and rescue me. Be propitious, be favorable to me, a sinner. That's his prayer. And then, after those two simple little prayers, Jesus drives the point home, simple story, verse 14. Back to Luke 18, verse 14, Jesus makes this point. He says, I tell you, this man, pointing to the tax collector, this man went down to his house from up on the Temple Mount, went down to his house, justified rather than the other. The Pharisee was so impressed with how spiritual he was, but it's the tax collector, the tax collector, the drug pusher, who goes to his home, justified, made right with God. Now, now, church, uh, bear with me because there's one other word I need to explain. Now, this word is not a rare word like propitiation. It's a common word, but it is the single most important word for salvation and getting into heaven. It is the word justify or justification. And actually, if we, we read in the Greek language, there are two other common words that are the same root idea. If you were reading the Greek language, dikaio. It'd be the same idea, and that is the words righteous and righteousness. 
Anytime you see any of those four words in the New Testament, justify, justification, righteous, righteousness, they all look similarly, and they all refer to being right with God. Think of the word right or righteous or righteousness. Cut off the first part, and that's the meaning. It means you are made right with God. It is the fundamental term used in the New Testament for being saved from your sin. It is bigger than forgiveness of sin. Forgiveness of sin means that you take all of your sin and they're, they're, they're wiped away from you as far as the east is where they're forgiven. But this term, justify, making right with God, it includes all of your sins are taken away, and then you've got the righteousness of Christ, the perfect life of Christ that is given to you so that forever and ever you are right with God. All sins for it's, it's a little bit like this. Think of a, a dirty white fence. <clears throat> it's old. Cobwebs, paint's faded, maybe even some mud and junk splattered on it. And first of all, you go clean it off completely with soap and a brush. That would be equivalent to getting your sins wiped clean, sins forgiven. But you don't stop there. The paint, it's clean, but if the paint is still faded, so you get some white paint and you paint the fence new and there's gleaming white paint. And that is equivalent to taking the righteousness of Christ and imputing it or giving it to you. Now, friends, whenever you trust Christ as your Savior, that's what happens. All your sins are removed from ever, and the holiness or righteousness of Christ is given to you forever. Now, get this, church. Um, I, Jeff Wells, a fallen, frail man who sins daily, all of my sins that I ever have committed and ever will commit have been forgiven and covered by the blood of Jesus. And the righteousness of Christ is placed upon me forever so that God does not look upon me and my sin, but me in Jesus Christ. Now, friends, that is the gospel. That's the gospel. All the world thinks that you get to heaven by earning it. Earn this. We start in the first grade, earning this. We start before that at home, kind of earning parents' love. Certainly in athletics, in, in uh, sports, and across the, the, the board, we are used to, you know, earning this, performing. And we think it applies to the spiritual life. But there's a problem. God is perfect, and to earn heaven, you got to be perfect. And nobody does it. So every religion in the world gets to heaven by being good enough. I remember reading a quote by Muhammad Ali some time back. He said, you know, at the end of our days when we die, you got good works and you got bad things you've done. If the good things outweigh the bad things, you go to heaven. If the bad things outweigh the good things, you go to hell. Now he gave voice to what is a common human works pride mindset. I got to earn this. Every religion in the world earn this. I would say 85% of Christians don't understand the gospel, and they have the earn this mindset too. Maybe you do. Friends, that's the Pharisee. I can be good enough to earn this. The tax collector, he doesn't get on the performance plan. He gets on the grace plan. Oh, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. Oh, God, have mercy. I've sinned against you. Doesn't do anything for my human pride. 
can't earn it, can't pat myself on the back. God, it's all of your mercy. I have no hope except the shed blood of Jesus. That's what we do with communion every week. Lord, this is my only hope. This represents the shed blood of Jesus, my only hope. Friends, I don't care how many years you've been in church. I don't care if your, your dad and mom were missionaries in Timbuktu. I don't care if you have memorized half the Bible and you give 20% of your income. I don't care if you are on the performance plan. That is the wrong plan. You're not getting there. It is the grace plan. Are you on the grace plan? God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Are you on the performance plan? Jesus says, this man, a pimp, he got on the grace plan. And he's going to heaven. He went down to his house justified, made right with God. When you receive that gift, that's the gospel. It's called good news. It's grace. It's a gift. Receive it. Don't do it. Receive it. All the world spells performance plan, spells getting into heaven, D-O, what you do. The gospel, it's spelled D-O-N-E, what Christ has done on a cross. And Jesus says here, at the conclusion of this brief, powerful parable, he says, this man went down to his house justified, made right with God, rather than the other. And then he concludes with one more statement. He says, for everyone who exalts himself, like the Pharisee, will be humbled, but he who humbles himself will be exalted. Now that statement Jesus makes four times is recorded in the Gospels. I bet he said it a hundred times. It's said in all different kinds of situations. It's just kind of a spiritual law of the universe, like the law of gravity. It's a physical law. Here's the spiritual law. Those people who exalt themselves... You want to draw attention to yourself? You're impressed with yourself? Always talking about yourself? Always thinking about yourself? Name dropping? Place dropping? All the ugly forms of pride, certainly spiritual pride. Everyone who exalts himself, they will be humble. They will. They will. Everybody's going to be humble. The only question is, are you going to humble yourself now for a short time? so that God can exalt you for all time, or are you going to exalt yourself for a short time and God will humble you for all time? The most humbling act is to come before a holy God and admit you cannot save yourself. You need a Savior. Oh, God, have mercy on me. Church, is that where you're at? Is that where you're at? It's a gift. The standard is not other people, that you're doing better than, you know, few folks over there, standard is Jesus Christ. Look at it this way. This is high baseball season. Astros are doing good. Look at it this way. Okay, say the batting average um, in the spiritual life. The uh, tax collector is not hitting very well. Doesn't have too many good works. Let's say he's batting 100. Those of you who are baseball fans, you know it's a scale of, of, uh, to 1,000. He's only batting 100. That's not very good. But now the Pharisee he's got a lot of good works out there. He's hitting 250. I mean, he's got two and a half times as many good works as that, as that tax collector's got. So he's hitting 250. But 250 is not going to get you into the Hall of Fame. And in the spiritual life, 
uh, though in baseball, 300 might get you in the Hall of Fame. In the spiritual life, you don't need 300. You need to bat 1,000. Perfect. And nobody's hitting 1,000. And so God, because he loves you, he did the unthinkable. He came to this earth, pinch hit for you in the spiritual life, died on a cross. All of your sins were placed upon him. And if you will cry out to God for mercy, he will save you. You need a pinch hitter for life, for life. You got one? Have you called out to a Savior who is the God, man, Jesus, who dies on a bloody cross, and when he died, he absorbed the wrath of God that was due you to your sin, wiped out your forgiveness, gave you his righteousness? And you've called out to God for say, have you done that? Church, if you've never been clear about it, this passage is so clear. Breathe a prayer right now. It doesn't matter your words, it's your heart. God, forgive me for my sin. I need a Savior. Do that now, just right now. Let me know if you have or let somebody know. Stand with me, please. Lord God, thank you so much for the gospel. Thank you so much that we don't have to earn it because we could never earn it, but that you had mercy on us with a Savior. We, we rejoice. We thrill to the shed blood of Jesus that washes away our sin. We're so grateful. Amen.